the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Marshal Mel Hupfeld, AODSC, joined the Royal Australian Air Force as an academy cadet in January 1980, winning the flying prize for his year. Mel's early career was spent in a variety of flying positions on Mirage and also FA-18 aircraft before qualifying as a fighter combat instructor in 1989, followed by a period of executive appointments in fighter squadrons. In 1997, Mel attended the Royal Air Force Staff Course, graduating with a Master of Arts in Defence Studies from King's College in London, before taking up post as a Deputy Director in the Aerospace Development Branch. In 2001, Mel took command of No. 75 Squadron and led the squadron in the Middle East on operations Bastille and Falconer. In 2003, he was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross in recognition of his performance as Commanding Officer 75 Squadron on Operation Falconer. And 75 Squadron was awarded a Meritorious Unit Citation. On promotion to Group Captain in 2004, he was appointed Director Aerospace Combat Development before accepting appointment as Officer Commanding No. 81 Wing in January 2006. Promoted to Air Commodore in 2007, Mel became the Director of the Combined Air Operations Centre in the Middle East area of operations before returning to Australia to various senior appointments including Director General Air Command Operations, Commander of Air Combat Group and then Air Commander Australia in 2012. In 2015, Mel was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service to the Australian Defence Force in senior command and staff appointments. After appointment to further very senior roles, including Chief Joint Operations, he was appointed Chief of Air Force in July 2019. Air Marshal Hupfeld is married to Louise and his interests include mountain biking, running, fishing, light aircraft and sailing. Marshal retired Mel Hupfeld, AODSC. It is an honour to be able to chat. How are you going? Um, well, thanks, Gareth. Great to, to uh, be able to chat with you this morning. Mel, you joined in 1980. Why did you join the Air Force and not the Army or the Navy? Oh, I've had a mad, passionate interest in flying uh, since I was a small child, in fact. My father was always interested in aviation. He got uh, gained his pilot's licence before he got a driver's licence uh, when he was a young lad. He was inspired by his uncle, in fact, who was a pilot with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, one of the earliest pilots flying um, Dragon Rapides across New South Wales uh, in the outback uh, in the old days, in the 1930s. And he uh, instructed during the Second World War in the Air Force. He was sort of one of those Australians that never saw active service and always felt a little, I guess, that, uh, you know, did he do enough during the war? And I didn't, I think, didn't realise how crucial and vital his role as an instructor was to supporting the war effort. It was something that still needed to be done. He, he was a squadron leader in the Air Force and sort of my father saw that, used to go flying with him. And then, of course, Dad used to take me flying in Tiger Moths and... Um, 
a Victor Air Tourer, many different aircraft over my younger years and um, inspired me to, to want to go flying and the Air Force was a great way to do that. Was gliding one of the types of craft that you're in? Yeah, so that's um, that's probably the first real flying that I did, at, you know, was instructed on. So my father was um, a member and an instructor with the Broken Hill Gliding Club. He used to take me up when I was about 14 and I can't quite remember. I don't think you can get a licence until you're 15 or so. So I did a little bit of flying early, um, but before I was able to finish and go solo in the glider, the Broken Hill Gliding Club folded up. So, but I, yeah, I used to go up flying and I remember flying in a a thermal with Dad, uh, he was instructing me and we were re- very tight thermal with you know, a lot of lift coming from it and it was it was so tight. He said, look, I'll show you how you can get a bit more performance and he put the flaps down. We got even tighter in this turn and uh, really impressive lift. And he said, now watch this when I pull the flaps up because he's flying the glider so close to the stall. As soon as he popped the flaps up, we stalled and spun back down through the centre of the thermal. A silly question for someone who's listening who's never been in a plane. We're in a glider. And you've been in an F-18. How would you compare the two? Well, I think anyone that likes flying, the, the sheer thrill of flying, uh, you get that. And, and the, the mechanisms, the techniques, the concepts for flying, you, I mean, you can't change physics. Technology helps you achieve different things, but the physics remains the same. You know, the concepts of flight, the impacts of the environment, weather on an aircraft, they still impact an F-18, similar to a glider, to a hang glider, to a Boeing 747. So you get that sheer thrill of flying, no matter which aeroplane uh, you're operating, and the challenge of that and also very significantly you get what I'd call the aviator's perspective. Being able to look down upon the earth and to look up at the sky being in the air is something that certainly uh, I'm very passionate about. It's something I very much enjoy and and I think uh, those that know what I'm saying will feel that anytime you get in an aeroplane whether you're in the cockpit or whether you're on an airliner looking out the window as you're flying over the world. It's such a unique experience and such a privilege to be able to sit in and operate an aircraft and get that aviator's perspective of the world. Yeah, I would have thought, though, in being in a glider without any sound, you are closer to being a bird than you are if you've got an engine with you because you can't hear anything. Yeah. yeah that, that sense of you are part of nature. Whatever the wind does, <laughs> your plane's going to do. But with a jet, yep, I can get out of this. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, that, it's a, that's a very good comparison. I'll give you another example then. I guess um, I flew hang gliders for a while as well, and uh, one of the flights that stands out in my memory was fly. I flew in Spain after I'd done staff college uh, in England in uh, 1997. I did a trip around Europe. I took my hang glider with me and flew in Spain, and I thermaled up to 12,000 feet. That's, that's about as close as you can get to feeling like a bird, I can tell you, and that, that was absolutely phenomenal. I can understand why you joined the Air Force now rather than the Navy or the Army. <laughs> you did your basic training at Point Cook. What was that like? Well, the, the lifestyle I went through the Royal Australian Air Force Academy, as it was called at the time, uh, based at Point Cook. So with you know, 30-odd of, of my new best mates, we had just a great time for three years at, uh, doing university. Of course, I had my eye on the end game. That was to go flying. The, the university degree was a Bachelor of Science degree was one thing. Uh, and throughout those three years of the degree, they used to op- they put us into the CT4 at 1FTS and take us for motivational flying, they called it. So when I actually started pilot's course after three years in the Air Force as a cadet, very highly motivated and energetic to do it, to actually get our hands on something tangible and, and practical and then actually do what 
I joined the Air Force to do. Yeah. Uh, so when we actually got in the aeroplane, the you know, instructors, a very professional group of instructors down there, Air Force Air Force instructors, they were very much uh, keen on uh, allowing us to perform to our best. But for me, it wasn't a foreign environment, having been flying a lot with my father, and certainly in Victor Air which was the basis of the design of the CT4, the similarities and familiarity was, was right there. So as much as every day when you're, learning to fly an aeroplane in a military training institution as much as every day is a test, uh, it was still extremely enjoyable. How did the wing commanders at the Johnson Trophy come about? What was the criteria for that? And obviously you owned it, you got it. Uh, that's, you're talking about the pilot's prize, is that what it's yes, called? Yes, the Johnson Trophy, that's the pilot's prize. Oh, is that right? I, I probably didn't realise it was called the Johnson's Trophy. but Oh, no, I think they just um, uh, looked at all the scores from... Uh, all of the flights that you did throughout pilot's course, so they tally those up and whoever had the highest score out of that reporting was, was awarded the trophy. It was uh, kind of uh, interesting to me. I you know, almost choked a few times uh, on when we had some of the key tests. So leading up to some of the tests along the way, you know, flying quite well and comfortable along the way up and then... Uh, whether it was nerves or whatever, I sometimes didn't perform as well in some of the tests. So I was kind of surprised that I actually won that trophy. It was quite an honour, though. I mean, some of my uh, course mates are very competent pilots as well. So, And a good mate of mine won the aerobatics prize. So there's a great example of someone that can feel the aeroplane and, and understand flying and, and get the best out of the aircraft. So, you know, quite a, to be singled out for the flying trophy was, was quite a privilege, but uh, there were a lot of my mates that were equally as good. A lot of the other people I've spoken to who've joined the Air Force, they say through their course, particularly at Point Cook, they say to, throughout that course, the various people above you, your instructors, are determining what you are specifically good at. Some might be better at engineering, some might be better at uh, being a loadmaster or, or whatever. Did you go through that or did you guess, were you chosen specifically for pilot training? No, in those days, uh, we would do our assessments and... Um, uh, uh, determination of, of our sort of, um, oh, I can't think of the word for it now, but, you know, your attributes and and, and, your, and what you, they think that you're capable of. I wasn't regarded as significantly academic when I did my assessments to join the Air Force. They thought I might struggle through the academy, but my pilot attitude was, was deemed pretty strong. So from the assessments they made, so I, uh, all of us that joined the Air Force Academy in those days were destined to be either pilots or navigators but the predominance for selection was to be was to be pilot aircrew. Then and now, let's assume you're still in the seat, then and now, how good is the RAAF in actually assigning skill sets to its personnel? I think they're, they're good, um, and I think they, the main thing is they're getting better. Now, this is a really difficult task to do. You can measure aptitude. Everyone does an IQ test. They, people know what that is. Um, there's an IQ test for pilot aptitude that's very similar. So you do all that uh, and you can get this so-called tangible assessment. But there's other less tangible aspects of being um, a pilot, for example, or any other role in the Air Force as well. They are, what's your desire, what's your aspiration, what's your ambition, what's your passion and what's your drive to succeed? And do you have the stomach for hard work uh, and the type of hard work that might be required for any of these different occupations? So that all ties into the aptitude mix and how anyone 
could ever guess what that would be for an individual is is really challenging. The difference between when I went in was that I was selected for the academy and to do pilot training from the start. On the way, they made assessments and really it, it boiled down to starting pilot course and whether you made it or you didn't, if you re- met the required standard in the required time frame, which is also an important requirement, then you would continue pilot training. If not, then you would be taken off and given options for other roles in the Air Force, such mm-hmm. as engineering or navigator training. Nowadays, what we do is we've, we're bringing people in from the public uh, and we put them into a stream. So we put them into an officer air crew or officer aviation stream, which includes uh, roles such as air traffic control, um, air battle managers. You know, so ground control interceptors is the old term. Uh, pilots, navigators, they're all sort of in the same pool with a preference for what you want, uh, what you'd like to aspire to. And then throughout the selection process and then the initial training program, um, we do a, a assessments along the way and then start to stream people into there where we think they're going to be most successful. And through that, and I haven't seen any of the latest data on it, but I think we're starting to get better results for people to actually achieve what they aspire to. The other advantage of this method is that there are people that join the Air Force and they would join and say, look, I want to join as a navigator. And so in my day, someone would say, I want to join as a navigator. If the Air Force sort of didn't know much more about them, they'd probably put them in as a navigator and wouldn't realise that they might have potential to be a pilot, for example. The method that's being used at the moment opens the door for people who might join to be they think they want to be an air traffic controller or a navigator, and then throughout the training they actually find that they're not only interested in being a pilot but actually have the aptitude for it, or vice versa. So we can then select people and better match them to what they want, matched against what their um, attributes and aptitude is. This is very important, I think, and a a very successful outcome when we start to uh, uh, want to remove obstacles for women uh, into these areas. So I'd say this um, very generically, and I'm sure some women, if they listen, are listening to this, would, may, may well argue with me. But in general, women are probably a little less willing to take risks to men. Men sometimes just don't have any fear and, and they haven't really considered all, all the options and weighed up all the options. And they'll go, I want to be a pilot, therefore I'm just going to crack at it. Whereas a woman's a, a lot more balanced and brings a view to say, well, I could do that this is what it will cost me, or I could do this and this is what that would cost me. And they'll marry that up and get a better sense of risk and then make a decision about which way they want to go. So sometimes they'll do that around an occupation such as pilot and think, well, that's a lot of work. That's a very, you know, some challenging circumstances there for me. Um, I don't want to pursue that because it will probably be too difficult. We'll let the next female air marshal argue with you when that person comes along uh, because some of the ladies that I've met it'd take a risk. Some of the men would be frightened to do what what, what they have achieved. So the, the, I think you can look at that in two different ways. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, to try and put men and women in different categories uh, and make it a clear-cut um, difference in categories, well, that's not, that's not true either. I mean, and that's, uh, that's why I'm glad you changed the term to aviator, which yes. is is quite neutral. A hundred people apply, and of that one hundred, not the not the one hundred all get are successful. The ones that aren't successful, what would be some of the the general reasons why they they've been not successful at becoming a full time member of the RAAF? Provide a caveat for you there. Um, participating in pilots course, undergoing pilot training, um, if they're deemed to not have been suitable to continue pilot training. What we would generally do, and we've been, the Air Force has already invested quite a significant amount into these into these people 
by bringing them into the Air Force for pilot training. So our first objective is to look at if, is there another role in Air Force that would suit them that they'd be willing to um, uh, 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 have a go at. Not successful at pilot, then a logical op- option would be to pursue navigator, navigator training. But as I say, there's other options, engineering, um, administration, all the full range of, of roles uh, in the Air Force for them to pursue if they, if they are so, so desired. So that would be the first thing. Uh, if the match between what they aspire to and what the Air Force thinks they're capable of don't match, then they obviously have a, a, a choice to then leave the Air Force at that point. So getting to the nub of the question, I think, in, and specifically in relation to pilot training, I think one of the key uh, challenges for people flying aeroplanes is three-dimensional awareness and being able to process. So there's a, a mix of being able to physically fly an aeroplane. Um, and in the old days, I think there's the joke or the, the sort of the story that they selected fighter pilots, as an example, during the Second World War by whoever could ride a horse on a galloping horse and fire a pistol at a target and hit the target. Therefore, you would have good hand-eye coordination. Yep, you've, you've got what it takes to become a fighter pilot. It's a bit more involved than that, of course. I'm sure so, because that, that would mean Don Bradman would be a good fighter pilot. Yeah, well, and, and I'll, uh, you know, there's other stories there too, I guess. Um, but So that's one method. But the other requirement when you're flying an aeroplane uh, th- in a three-dimensional environment, moving in all dimensions, there's a lot happening. Uh, flying an aeroplane itself is, is only one part of the challenge. Uh, the next part is actually operating it. Uh, and when we talk about military flying, it's about using that equipment in combat. And whether that's a fighter aircraft or these days a C-17, a C-130, are those aircraft going to combat as well, as we saw with our um, C-130s and C-17s when we did the, the evacuation of personnel out of Afghanistan after the yes. Taliban came in? Those aircraft are in the face of danger. Uh, they're in combat. Um, flying the aeroplane is not the hard bit. Um, you know, we take that as, as a given. It's about knowing three-dimensionally what's around you, what threats are there, uh, how do I avoid weather, uh, all those sort of outcomes. Uh, that's the challenge. So that's now becomes about processing information. Um, so how fast can you gather information, process it, and then turn it into that hands and feet coordination and delivery. If I could interrupt there on that very topic then. So a, a pilot now in an F-35 with a helmet, with the full display in their in their helmet, with all of the information, radar, perception, distance, etc., is that another level of that three dimension that requires a skill set that not many people have? Being able to process all that information? Yeah, sure. And I, look, I would encourage you to to do one of these podcasts with one of our F thirty five pilots. Um, I've not really had a chance to fly an F-35, but my experience in classic Hornet and indeed Super Hornet, uh, and the Super Hornet's not an F-35 fifth-generation uh, fifth aircraft. It's getting close. The aircraft are designed now to build all that information and bring it into you in a uh, you know a far more integrated and coherent fashion so the pilot can see a, a hell of a lot of information gathered together and then execute what needs to be done. Mm. There's still the piloting skill that's required, but the processing and thought uh, outcomes uh, is probably another step up, I guess, to what I would have been used to. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the aeroplane does a lot, a lot of that for you, so it means you can do more with the aeroplane now than what we could. So, yeah. you know, I've, I've spoken to you earlier about the Mustang. I had none of that information available, so everything 
your hands and feet doing the flying, your head looking out, your sensor was your eyeballs um, and your ears listening to radio and, and pulling information that your formation mates could see. That was The sensors were pretty, pretty much our eyes, but using radios to transmit other parts and integrate that visual picture that all the Mustang pilots could see. You step that up through the years, now you've had radars, you had infrared sensors, um, you had a radar uh, in an AEW, airborne early warning aeroplane and, and space-based information, many, many sources of data coming in. The F-35 pilots not putting all those together in their head themselves, that's presented to them, and then they can, they can use that data and that information more coherently. Okay. So the outcome and the objective is the same. Let's look specifically at MELS flying then. Uh, you, you've been in gliders, you've been uh, flown uh, the CT4, you've the Mackie, the Mirage, the Super Hornet, etc., etc. As you tracked your own career through those variety of aircraft, what were the challenges for you? What would, did you think you were good at? I'm not going to say bad at. What were you, did you think you were good at within those individual types of aircraft and which would you prefer to be married to? That's challenging. I think I'll give you a comparison about aircraft types to start with. So the training aircraft are you know, reasonably simple and easy to fly. Um, they, they build your core skills. So up through CD4 to Mackie, and Mackie was a beautiful single-engine jet aircraft, really nice to fly. In effect, it was a glider with an engine. Its gliding performance was very, very good, and it's a very smooth, nice-to-fly aircraft. Uh, to step from the Mackie to the Mirage, my goodness, that was a pretty huge step. Mirage is not easy to fly. While it's a beautiful aeroplane to fly, once you've mastered it, it's, it's a really lovely aircraft to fly, but it you know, had a very high landing speed. The engine management requirements, you, you had to be very particular about how you applied the full power in the aircraft and how you then engaged the afterburner to provide the, the maximum power that was available. You had to let the, the power stabilise at maximum RPM before you ignited the afterburner and then you had to wait for that to stabilise before you then put the power forward to get full afterburner. Uh, so when you're in a dogfight, you have to be looking at all those sort of things to manage the aircraft system in order to fly it effectively in combat. Uh, and, of course, manoeuvring the aircraft could do one one very good turn, but only one because it was such a, a delta wing very had a lot of drag and you'd slow down very quickly once you started to turn. Yep. If you wanted to fly at Mach 2, though, it did that very well. You know, every aircraft's different, but it was quite complicated to get the best out of the Mirage. If I compare that to the F-18 Classic Hornet, it's a beautiful aeroplane and easy to fly. From takeoff, it uh, augmented flaps and the way that the aircraft is designed, and it's designed to land on a carrier so it can fly quite slowly. The power, the engine control, you can slam the throttle from idle to maximum power and it the computers work out how to add the fuel and do all those sort of things and when to ignite the afterburner. So in a dogfight, you could go from idle to full power and back to idle and pretty much do what you wanted to do, and it was it was uh, very less, you know, much less workload. So you could spend more time fighting the aeroplane in the dogfight. And the aircraft's turn performance and the ability to go from, you know, high speed into a very tight turn for dogfighting, um, it, it was very much easy to do that, to sustain your turning with lots of engine power meant that you could dogfight very effectively. Mm. You could choose whether you bled all your energy down to low speed or whether you wanted to accelerate with rapid power addition. So you had much more control over how you how you flew and fought the aeroplane in the dogfight. 
Super Hornet, much the same, and the F-35 in that sense is much the same. Now, then across the top of all that, you add all all the systems into play that you can use. So from fighting a mirage, you're just looking out the window and pointing the nose to where you wanted the weapons to go, whether it was a gun or a, or a heat-seeking missile. In the uh, F-18 early days, that was very similar, although we had a better long-range radar-guided weapon. Yeah. And we use the radar in a dogfight to lock onto a to an adversary in your dogfight and get get a lock off the bore sight so you could actually fire weapons without having to point at the aeroplane at the at the adversary. The introduction of such equipment uh, like the helmet mounted sight brought a whole new realm to that, being able to look inside the turn of the dogfight and target an aircraft that was well off the nose um, and use your weapons that were available there. And the F-35, once again, the next generation of how to do that. These sort of systems make um, the use of the aeroplane very different. And indeed, as we've developed new generations of aircraft, the ability to influence and affect an adversary further out at range to what we call hold them at risk, if you like, um, we can do that further out and affect them much further out than what we used to be able to when I was flying the Mirage. Um, and that's the you know that'll be the next generation of weapons that are developed as longer range weapons, you know, well beyond visual range. We're talking you know 100 kilometres or more. Ideally, you want to be able to remove an adversary from influencing you well before you see them. What we always do is there's a preeminence and requirement to be good at dogfighting because you might have to dogfight a missile that's fired at you or another aircraft if they got through all those other layers. So that's about being good in the in the final fight anyway, so those core skills will always remain. So which one did I think I was best at? Well, it's pretty hard to say. I, I've always got a soft spot for the Mirage, being the first fighter I, I truly flew. But the Classic Hornet is the one that I spent most time on. 3,000 hours in the Hornet, I believe. Yeah, that's right, just a little bit over that, I think, total. But yeah, that's the one I'd have what I'd call muscle memory for. I feel I could probably jump in that and fly it now. But as always, flying the aeroplane is not the challenging part. It's operating it. And, you know, I could I could fly an F-35, I've no doubt. But being able to work the systems, I've got a fair bit of training to do to understand how all that pulls together. That leads to an obvious question. The various conversion courses that the RAAF runs for its pilots, what makes the conversion courses that we do in the second oldest Air Force in the world so good? I think it's probably attention to detail. We And I would say, too, second oldest Air Force, but we're also a very modest-sized Air Force. So we have the benefit of knowing each other quite well. Um, we can be more agile in our training um, to learn from, as we execute uh, our flying operations and, in particular, our training uh, outcomes, we can be more agile to look at what works and what doesn't. Uh, every time we teach someone, we learn about, um, how to train people. Everyone learns differently. And as we look at the tactics that we need to operate and fight the aircraft, if, if indeed that's ever required, um, we can be more agile to bring those lessons into our training syllabus and our methods of training. So I think that's really where we can, you know, if you like, we're a little petri dish here, and we can be a lot more innovative uh, and responsive to change. And that allows us to keep on top of uh, of. Uh, of developments and, and changes through all those different areas, you know, the, the yeah. means to teach, the type of people that we've got, and, of course, the strategic and threat environment so that we're actually able to bring all those together in the most coherent way to get the best training outcome that we see. So with the centenary as our backdrop, 
um, would you say that the achievements of the RAAF uh, rest to some extent on the fact that we are only a population of 24, 25 million people thereabouts and we are the second oldest air force in the world, as I said. So is, the, is our small size a factor of significance? Oh, look, I think that helps. The other thing I'd say is just our Australian character. Um, Australians, by nature, I, I think, are innovative. While they can be quite compliant, and we saw that during COVID as an example, they also don't mind uh, saying what they think. So, and look, you know, you, you see all the Hollywood movies about um, the Gallipoli and in Vietnam and the dynamic and the picture of our diggers, if you like, is a soldier and an Australian that's willing to challenge authority, you know, doesn't just sit idly by and accept things as they are and if they see something that's not right, they'll say they'll say what's going on. So that's what I'd roll into what I'd call the Australian character. That's largely why I think we are able to leverage this so well in terms of our training systems and, and get better at what we do. And, of course, um, and I'll use an example here for you, Gareth, that uh, throughout our training evolution, we had people, and some of our old and our old legends, really, uh, the people I'm talking about here are the likes of Dickie Creswell, and I, and I name him specifically. Well, I've interviewed him. I know who you mean. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he flew at the end of the Second World War. He, he flew through Korea. And what he saw was at the end of the Second World War, moving into Korea, we lost a lot of our combat experience and, and um, skills as we then sent trained people and sent them into combat in Korea. We did this at the same time. In fact, I think we almost led uh, the American Air Force. The, the United States Air Force set up what they call the Fighter Weapons Instructors Course, which was to give people the opportunity to experience their first five combat missions in a training environment before they had to go into combat so that we wouldn't lose those skills. Dickie Creswell is what we call the father of the fighter combat instructors course, which is our our version of the fighter weapons instructors course that USAF use. And our fighter combat instructors course was put in place by Dickie Creswell um, at, at least at the same time as the US were thinking these sort of things. So uh, we were able to bring that sort of forethought, that innovation, that Australian character, that was already there in his time. Uh, and it just, it's just been continually uh, enhanced and delivered as we move forward into the future. And we've got young people now on the F-35 that are doing the same sort of thing. Let me say two things then. What you The way you've just painted that picture, I urge you to read uh, a description that a poet laureate from the United Kingdom by the name of John Macefield wrote about the Australian. He said pretty much the exact same thing when he was talking about the Australian troops in, in Gallipoli, you know, they refused to salute, but they, they achieved far more than we did. But more importantly, I had a, an interview with a couple of loadmasters on caribous during the Vietnam War, and with six caribou, with six caribou, they achieved more than the United States Army and the United States Air Force to the point where the United States Defence sent investigators to the Australian to find out why they were having a better success rate than the Americans were. So uh, two examples certainly support exactly what you've just said. But you have, you have a, a two great events that I'd like you to recount for us. In 1986, you were involved in Queen Elizabeth II's colour parade and then 35 years later, the new colour for the centenary, you, you saw that as well. Just, can you relate that sto- those two stories for us? I, I can. But, um, before, I'm just going to go back to the comment you just made about the caribou um, and that 
Australian character, just to provide you one more example, um, and a more contemporary one, just to prove that it is coming through the system still now. In Iraq in 2003, uh, around that time frame when we, were, uh, when we were over there for Iraqi freedom, our transport aircraft were assisting, the C-130s were assisting in Iraq with the airlift and the uh, air mobility. I think, and, I, and you know, uh, my, uh, I'll, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but the general numbers I think are about right. Uh, I think we had about 1% or 2%, we were providing about 1% or 2% of the airlift aircraft into the mix for air logistics, uh, but because of how we approached business, we were actually moving 10% of the airline. <laughs> so uh, just a small example, and, and uh, you know, i you got to, I got to say, I, in my time, over my time in Air Force Korea, I'm a fighter pilot through and through for sure, but one of the things that really stood out for me uh, through some of my most senior leadership roles in the Air Force was our um, transport and our maritime patrol capabilities as well. Uh, you know, I've said it earlier that, that they were in combat just as much as um, the sure. fighter aircraft and, in fact, more often, and uh, and their roles have been just extraordinary. Uh, amazing aircrew across the full spectrum, uh, including pilots, navigators, loadmasters, and, indeed, all the people that support yeah, just if I can add one bit to that, there have been since up to 1921, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 1921, from 1921, there have only been, only been 350,000 personnel total in the RAAF. And when you compare that to the United States Air Force with populations approaching 300 million to our 25 million, I think it would be fair to say we punch way above our weight. I'd, I'd say that too. And of course, by, by even saying that, we're at risk of, of uh, getting challenged by some of our closest friends and colleagues. But bring it on, you know that's that's part of our strategy. <laughs> Let's, move on then. Let's get to the colour. The point yeah, is, the colour. Colour, those two events. Yeah, look, uh, quite interesting. And uh, yeah, it's it's as happens throughout anyone's life and their career. You, you never realise uh, things that you do now, how that might uh, feel or impact further down the track. So this is a great example for me, I think. Um, I was my secondary duty when I was at Three Squadron as a Bograt pilot, so just flying the Mirage in Butterworth. Um, I'd only been flying uh, in Butterworth for just over a year, but I was the colour bearer. You know, my role was to make sure the colour was looked after, you know, maintained, uh, protected. Any time we had to carry it for a dining in night or a parade up at, in Butterworth, I was the one that had to get it out with gloves on and take care of it. So, of course... Uh, what was I interested in doing then was flying aeroplanes. You know, I just wanted to go and fly. So secondary duties, yeah, you, know, you did those because you had to. Uh, and then, of course, there's this colours parade for the Royal Australian Air Force colour uh, in 1986 to go and uh, get all the colours of the Air Force, bring them together at Richmond and do a big parade to get the new colour for the Royal Australian Air Force. I wasn't particularly happy about that because it meant that I was ha- having to go to Richmond for six weeks, uh, six weeks of no flying to do marching, really. That's not what I joined the Air Force to do. A little bit disappointed, but, you know, strangely enough, there was a deep sense of pride at being the one that was the colour bearer that would then be carrying this colour on the parade. Now, uh, my wife's an Air Force through and through, and she, she loves a parade more than I do, but there is still something that, that I think most people, and certainly I feel, um, a parade it still has a lot of meaning for me. It's the military tradition. So despite that I was going to miss flying, they, I was a little bit pride, proud and, and chuffed that I was actually going to go down and carry my squadrons, three squadrons colour, 
on this big parade. Um, I just wish that I could get down there, do a couple of days of marching practice, get on the parade, <laughs> see all that and come home. But uh, it was a bit longer than that. So uh, that was absolutely amazing. Doug Riding was the parade commander. We did a lot of work. And as it built up towards the final product, you know, the, the buzz and the sense of importance of this really started to drive home to all of us. That's my first meeting of, of uh, Doug Riding, and I've, I've stayed a, a good friends with him ever, you know, ever since I became a, a one star and above. He's been a great mentor to me. And I remember clearly him losing his voice the day before the final parade. So it was, uh, he, was, he did such a great job as the commander of that event as a group captain. Um, so a really, truly great experience and to be on the parade, carrying the colour, marching past um, the, the prince uh, at the time. Um, uh, a really amazing event, and of course, you now fast forward to uh, nineteen. Uh, sorry, to twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one, yeah, yeah, for the centenary. To be the chief of air force, to then grab the old colour and receive that colour, to lay it up prior to receiving the new colour, uh, to have been on the parade and marched past that new colour when it was given to us in nineteen eighty six, and then to see it laid up and to actually have held it and done that as part of the ceremony was uh, was. Well, truly an honour and a privilege and quite emotional, I've got yeah, to say. I and could imagine the second one would have been. Sorry to be rude and interrupt, but for the person who's listening right now and not part of the Air Force, because we do have a lot of people who aren't part of the RAAF who listen, what's the colour? Well, our colour's like, you know, in the old days, everyone had their battle flag. So uh, in the old days of tribes and, um, you know, you can look at medieval fights through Hollywood movies, you know, and Game of Thrones, those sort of movies. The banner and the colours on horseback, and it's protected very strongly by the soldiers. But it's when you see your flag get to the other side and and be victorious in achieving the objective, a very significant mark and identity of um, the, the of what you're fighting for. You know, I've said that um, you know my surname's German, but my mother's side of the family is Scottish, so I play the bagpipes and. Uh, you yeah. play the bagpipes. I do, yeah. And uh, but the the pipes, as they say, aren't a true instrument of war. And you know, the pipes used in the Scottish tribes over, over the many thousands of years uh, rallied the troops, the sound, and they followed the pipes into war. Okay. The colour is the modern manifestation of all of that. It's, it's our traditions are rooted in the in the in the British sort of heritage. That's where it's come from. Our, our colours represent our squadron. It's it's uh, the honour of the squadron for the colour of the Royal Australian Air Force, the honour of the Air Force. We, if you like, carry those into battle. We take them wherever we go. Your uh, bagpipe playing, my Irish grandfather once said to me, Gareth, you know why the Scots are always marching when they play the bagpipes? I said, uh, <laughs> yes. No, no, why? They're trying to get away from the sound of the bagpipes anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, you're on the money, Gareth. Um, <laughs> I, now I play the pipes, but I always think they sound better when they're a K and a half away across the lock on the top of the mountain. Or Paul McCartney having them played in the Mull of Kintyre. Um, yeah. Is the role of uh, the RAAF moving, is the next frontier for the RAAF space? Well, I wouldn't say it's for the RAAF. I'd say it's for the, for the ADF and indeed for the defence organisation and indeed for the nation. Uh, space is a is a domain that really has no geographic boundaries and uh, Air Force is leading, what I'd call leading in the space domain. It's a domain that all three services need to be contributing to and need to be a part of to bring their, 
their expertise and the cultural approach to how they function and operate in each of the three services um, does have a play in, in what will eventually become what's the what's the culture and approach that we take in the space domain. We're currently executing that through what we call the Space Command, Defence Space Command, and it's led by the Chief of Air Force as the space domain lead, but it's it's not... This is not an Air Force approach, I believe. Uh, now, maybe that'll change. For example, the French have formed what they call the French Air and Space Force. Um, the US have established a specific space force themselves. Uh, that's a service in its own right. Um, and the UK are very similar to us. They have got their Royal Air Force, and within that, they, they lead the um, UK Space Command. There's a number of different approaches to it, um, and I'm I'm not one. My belief, I'm not sure where that's going with the current chief, nor the you know the current chief of defence force, as well as the chief of air force. Which way they will lean in the fullness of time. But at the moment, it's it's a domain that's shared by all, and we need to treat it as such. Let me ask then this question: uh, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, those three fields of of battle. We had nations. And within nations, we had an army, we had an air force, and we had uh, a navy all working independently of each other. Has the move, when you were air marshal and previous to you, is the move to bring, not have one force on all together, but to bring the communications across those three services and across our allies closer together so we're all on the same page? Is that the, is that the evolution? Oh, it definitely is. So... What we've used in the in the past for quite a number of years, and uh, a lot of the chiefs of air force before me um, have always been building towards this uh, approach, and uh, and that is the establishment of what we've called the joint force. In my view, a joint force is the ability to bring the qualities and characteristics of fighting in each of the different domains. Air force are the experts in the air domain. The Navy are the experts in the maritime and, and uh, or the maritime domain, and the Army are the experts in the land domain. But none of us can do what's required without engaging, sharing, and employing capabilities that come from the other domains. You know, as we've been building our capabilities forward as an Australian Defence Force, we recognise that and we bring those attributes and traits, behaviours, skills, and capabilities together and we bring that together into what we call the joint force where we can better coordinate command and control, utilise the, the capabilities and strengths of each of the three services and their expertise in each domain in order to better coordinate that and present that um, as a joint warfighting capability. So my view is that you know, we bring Air Force brings capabilities and culture um, that we bring into the joint force. Army have aircraft, so they actually operate in the air domain as well. Um, but we can provide some leadership for them in that area, but they still bring air capability into the land domain. So being able to better bring those three together with their culture and to form what I think I would call a joint culture, being able to understand, celebrate our diversity as three different services and bring that more strongly together to get the, the, the sum of the parts, if you like, me is what a joint force is about. Um, what we also add... Uh, so the joint force historically has just been Navy, Army, Air Force. But what we now add is the space domain. And we also now add cyber and the information domain. And cyber are non-physical domains. 
domain is become equally as important, and in fact, in some ways more important. But those five domains now come together to what we would call the joint force and bringing the capabilities that are available, the ability to influence an adversary through each of those domains. That's now what we'd be calling a joint force, and it brings another level of language that we're actually more, we need to be more of an integrated force. So the terms joint and integrated become far more applicable, and it's that integration across using the diversity that is represented in each of those domains that being able to capture that and use it effectively, that's where you'll gain superiority if competition with an, with a, with an adversary become, goes to the point where you need to, uh, you, you step across the boundary into a level of conflict. Uh, that's where we'll need to be to be successful and, and, uh, and defend our nation. And what steps have uh, been operated on to achieve that same sort of cooperation across nations? Yeah, so then, then you're talking combined. Pretty much all of our key partners, you know, there's obviously the Five, Eye, five Eyes nations, uh, very like-minded, uh, all aspiring to a similar approach to their, to their services and their forces. But add again the Australian character and our approach to business and the fact that we are a medium-sized force means that we can do that more, in a more agile and responsive way to adapt and ideally have less stovepipes while we do that compared to a big organisation such as the uh, the US military. But we're each aspiring to the same sort of things and we trade and learn from each other. But it's more than just Five Eyes, of course. The region itself, that's where we live. So the Indo-Pacific is, is where we live. Um, our relationships with our um, nearest neighbour, the PNG is our nearest neighbour, our relationships with Indonesia is, is our, uh, you know, as a very close neighbour and a very large Population and a and a combat a, a, a competent and capable defence force, um, and then of course Singapore, Malaysia, uh, the Philippines, you know, yeah, Thailand, yeah. and India, Japan. You know, they're nations that are. You know, I, I would like to think very like-minded, and we've got in, in a lot of cases air forces, navies, and armies of similar size. You know, India is actually probably quite a lot bigger than all of us, and and Japan in some ways as well. Similar approaches, similar similar sort of concepts and thoughts, and and indeed a, a need to be able to understand each other and interoperate. So you've been involved in operations like Catalyst and Slipper and uh, Deluge, etc. You've been you you know what happened in Iran. You know what happens in Afghanistan. Has it been your experience that the Australian point of view has been more than welcomed by? Well, let's take our largest ally, the United States Air Force, the United States Army, the United States Navy. Uh, do they look at us as a peer? Oh, look, I, yeah, peer or not, I don't know if it's relevant. What we do is we, whenever we're involved in these sort of discussions and we, we make it our business to be involved, then we're given an equal voice. And, of course, uh, within that, each nation has their own sovereign decisions that they will want to make. They need to be politically sovereign. And we want them to be economically stable and uh uh, and prosperous, and of course, to do that, security is a, is a key enable to achieve those two outcomes. So, in terms of being like-minded, they're the sort of areas that we talk to each of our partner nations. And the, the US, if you like, often leads in this area because they have the mass, they have the ability to influence, and you know, they'll say things in a public forum that Australia would, wouldn't want to address, wouldn't want to say. And, and we're not like that. We're not a superpower, so we don't intend to go out and talk about our enemies. 
we don't really have enemies. We've got some areas that are competitors, that's for sure. Our work is to try and work with our nations in the region to ensure that those competitors don't become adversaries. That's executed by a government employing national power in sensible, balanced ways. So our voice as a military in the region contributes to those objectives. What we get to say, that sovereign engagement, sovereign inputs, and of course, as we would expect from every every other country, that they would expect that, that respect our opinions and our views on that and our differences. Uh, we likewise do the same with them, whether that's the US, whether it's um, Indonesia, whether it's Japan, wherever... Uh, those nations that are that are our partners in the Indo-Pacific, wherever they sit, it's important that we do that. And indeed, I would say, yeah, China's very controversial at the moment, but I'd apply by the same sort of logic. They're not a partner in the same sense as, as an ally as, uh, as we are with the US, uh, but there's so, such a strong trade relationship that we have with China. We have a diaspora of Chinese people in Australia. Um, China has a very strong part to play in the security, prosperity of the Indo-Pacific. So we respect their point of view, but we are going to challenge where we might have differences, and that should be no different for any of the nations. And I think if that's just respect, in my view, it's the same as we treat our neighbours when we're living you know, in a suburb somewhere. Air Marshal 2018, with a job of all activities to meet government strategic objectives, to develop Australia's alliances and to prepare joint force for all contingencies. All activities to meet government strategic objectives. How does a person, an Air Marshal, a General, an Admiral, take advice from someone in government who has no military experience? What's the tension? What's the process? How does that? How is that achieved successfully? Yeah, it's, uh, and I think you've hit on one of the the most challenging but also rewarding parts of the job when you get into those senior leadership positions, um, having some understanding of of strategic intent and implication, having some understanding of political nuance is really vital to those roles uh, and it's probably one of the most challenging parts of them. At the, you know, certainly you're, you're starting to see that at the two-star level, you touch it at the one-star level, uh, but it really drives home once you're at the three-star level. Taking advice from the government, um, I'd probably swing that around. We take direction from government. We operate in accordance with government direction and intent. And, of course, in the military, what we try and do is we use what's called mission control, I guess, for a simple term. But at the senior leadership level, we provide commander's intent. We try not to tell people how to do their business because we're not the experts on it, but we'll provide clear, ideally unambiguous intent about what we want to achieve in accordance with government direction and policy. Uh, and then we let those below us innovate and, and find the solutions that would meet that outcome. What we then do is we work through all those. So where the government have a policy or an objective that they want to achieve, um, as the chief of joint operations, um, we would put plans together to work out how we might achieve that. And we would go to each of the three services or each of the members of the five domains that I've previously spoken about. And we've got experts in joint operations that would pull that together, but going back to the parent organisations as well to find out what it is that we could do. And from there, we form plans and then provide advice to government to say, well, look, you wanted to achieve this outcome or this objective. Here's a number of ways we could do it. Uh, This is the one I recommend. Mm. And this is the risk that's attached to each of these options. 
And that risk could form political, it could be stated in the form of political risk, financial risk, you know, how much is it going to cost us to do it, personnel risk, um, risk to nation, uh, and, uh, you know, that, those sort of elements are what we have to be able to bring a nuance together to bring that advice to government to say this is what we recommend, uh, what would you like to do? Okay. So the art, the art is in presenting, you know, affordable, achievable, um, uh, realistic and politically viable options to government so that they can make a sensible decision about what to do next. In this calendar year, there's been much discussion about the need for Australia to enhance its defence capability in terms of what it purchases, be they nuclear submarines or F-35s or new tanks or new helicopters or whatever. Those, just if we are going to enhance our defence capabilities, does a government rely on information from the three services as to what is the best way to do that and the most economical way to do that? Is that what happens? Well, that's certainly, um, so my experience having been in the capability development area and then under the new structure, well, not so new now, but formed in 2016 was the uh, the new organisational structure for capability or force design, we called it, and uh, and establishing how we would do the joint force design. That is how we would do it from each of the services and the domain leads. Uh, we would take advice from them, uh, form together a view and then provide that to government. That would give them the basis of uh, background of understanding, you know, if this is what they wanted to do, how much is that going to cost? What capabilities do you need to invest in to, to achieve that outcome? Uh, and then they would make a decision about what the structure, the force structure would be in order to, to meet what they needed and anticipated needing into the future. Now, at the moment, as I understand it, there's the uh, it's an ongoing defence strategic review, which is, I think, due to be delivered to government uh, shortly, I think in a March timeframe. But that defence strategic review is being conducted by some independent leads, in this case, Sir Angus Houston and, and uh, Dr um, Stephen Smith. They are drawing on arms of government to assist them with that work, but the work is theirs. So they are providing independent advice, sourcing some data and information, obviously, from Defence for it, um, but their advice will be to government to say, on, all, on the balance of all the sort of things you want to do, here's a number of same sort of outcome, though. Here's the options, here's the risk, here's the fund, this is the budget, this is what, it'll co- what, what it will cost. Uh, and here's some trade-offs you might want to consider and make, and then government will obviously consider that through Cabinet. Uh, and ultimately, uh, with the Prime Minister chairing the Cabinet, they'll make a decision about how they want to invest in Australia's uh, security for the future and what that will entail um, across three key resources, people, dollars and time. Um, how are they going to manage all of those to deliver the outcome? And then, then of course, the dollars relate and transfer to the investment in equipment, uh, and then, of course, dollars also relate to investment in people and training of those people and the sustainment of those people and that equipment to actually deliver the outcome okay. into the future. As, as a former Chief of Air Force and a former Air Marshal, let me pose a number of questions to you that now that you've retired, you might be able to answer. <laughs> What's the role of a leader as far as the Air Force is concerned? This is... a uh um, always a challenging question when you ask someone, right, there's, here you go, you've got Chief Air Force who's 
led the Air Force, been a so-called leader, or well, what does it all mean? It's it's that's a good question. Start there. It is a good question, and it's hard to put into words. But at, at various levels of the organisation, the leadership function can have very different connotations, different sort of emphasis and focus. But overall, the outcome's the same. It's about uh, empowering people, bringing the best and giving people an opportunity. It's about communicating with people and giving them, and that's a two-way street, giving them an opportunity to communicate back. It's about having strategic vision. And, of course, at different levels of the organisation, strategic vision will represent a different sort of perspective depending on where you sit. So as a Chief of Air Force, strategic vision as to where we want to take our Air Force into our second century um, is a really important part of a strategic view and, and where we want to go, as opposed to what do we want to do for the um, the future of a fighter squadron operating F-35 and how far ahead do we want to look? Uh, it's still strategic vision, but the, the timeline and the context might be slightly different. It's being, uh, uh, you know, as I said, enabling people, understanding and using their skills and their strengths where it's best available. It's being able to see all these aspects um, as a leader and, and, and being able to bring those together to, to get the best out of your organisation. Gather information, gather all the data and allowing your, your, the, the experts in your organisation to present those. But at some point, there's a need for you to make a decision and pro- progress forward on the balance of all the information you've got available, balancing the risks that are there and then being accountable uh, for that decision. Um, and that's where it comes into play. I'll, I'll give you a, an analogy that I use when I talk to leadership forums and our you know, command courses, uh, those sort of things. And I'll use some abrupt language in here. So Please, go for it. I hope I don't offend anyone with the use of the term, but I always tried to work out about leadership how to explain it. Uh, I did, and it wasn't until I did a course when I was a two-star uh, where a facilitator on the course used this definition, which really it worked for me. So if it works for someone else, then, then great. What I always grappled with was the concept of leadership versus management. People would always say that leadership is an innate quality. It's something that you either have or you don't have. It's not something you can learn. And uh, management is something that you can be taught. You can be taught you know, good methods, that, you know, 10 principles of leadership, of which I've touched on a few of those. So you can sort of understand those aspects to make yourself a better manager. But uh, you know, to be a good leader, it's an innate quality. You, you, you're, either, you're born with it or not. Now, I don't think that's actually true. And the way I, uh, that's explained to me and the way I now present it is uh, what you have is a continuum that's called management. At the bottom end of the continuum, you've got a bastard the middle of the continuum, you've got a boss, and at the top end of the continuum of management, you've got the leader. So it's how you manage and listen to people. It's how you use the best uh, attributes of each of the people that work for you and how you bring them and use their information to make decisions and guide them and then lead them into where you need to take them. That defines whether you're a bastard, a boss, or a leader. Okay, so on that continuum... Would that put Gandhi at the top and Churchill at the bastard end? Well, I think um, Churchill's probably quite a unique individual and was able to transition across that that spectrum as he deemed necessary. In other words, he could be a bastard and a saint. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there's no doubt that he possessed some of the attributes of leadership there that inspired, gave people an opportunity to, to deliver their best. Uh, and this is part of the challenge of leadership and certainly in a military context. Sometimes there is no time to deliberate and gather all the full level of information. You know, you always would aspire as a good leader 
to have as much information as you can. But when it's time to make a decision, and, and certainly um, in conflict or in, in times of uh, you know, dire consequence, um, you will be called upon to make decisions that need to be made and taken right now. A good leader then might have, you know, without being a bastard or and, and not being just a boss, but being a strong leader is actually making a very firm decision that might go against other people's views. This is not about consultation and uh, um, getting a collaborated solution all the time. Yeah, it's no. about gathering all the best data, understanding the risk, and making an appropriate decision. On, a, on, on that basis, on that basis, and I, I. 100% agree with your analogy on that basis. Uh, General Monash, in 93 minutes in the Battle of Le Hamel, 93 minutes defeated the Germans. Mm. He, he, for me, is the archetypical leader, commander leader. And on that spectrum, he's certainly not at the bastard end. But yeah. he, he actually was in charge of American troops as well. I put him at the other end. He, he's not a boss. He's, he's a leader. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, look, your, your analogy is absolutely brilliant and I'm going to take it out of the interview and use it myself when I'm talking about what is a leader. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you it's, is... It's not, not my, my analogy. I, you know, I'm not going to plagiarise here, so uh, it's, it's something that I learnt from someone else. And okay, well, ta- your version of it, take credit for your version of it. Um, when you're a, when Chief of Air Force, uh, Air Marshal... You've got a lot of staff, uh, both op- both RAAF personnel and bureaucrats. What is the role of a person in charge when their protectors are so protective that you can't get to that person? That will remain an ongoing challenge. Um, we see that at all levels. One of the roles of the leader is to make sure they're accessible. That is very difficult, of course, when there's only a certain number of hours in the day. Um, my staff, for example, when I was chief of Air Force, very jealously guarded my calendar and my schedule. So that, by default, often means that they will be excluding someone that might want to talk to me on a very important matter, matter that my staff maybe didn't realise the importance of it. So what's important there from a leadership perspective, and this is about communication, it's about setting clear intent, and it's about setting clear priorities and being able to give that guidance to the people that work for you and with you so that they can as much as possible understand your intent and and what's important to you and then provide the opportunity to be able to engage at all levels of the organisation when and where it's required and with the appropriate sense of urgency when it's required so that you can make sure you don't miss things. The other role of the staff is to be a safety net for you. So there's no, I don't think, uh, one person who can possibly keep all the balls in the air and, and understand all the issues all of the time and, and be able to take action on every single one of them. It's just it's not humanly possible, I don't believe. I think there are some real masters out there that are very good at it, but even those are, are going to be challenged to be able to do everything all the time. Okay. Well, you were still Chief of Air Force and Air Marshal when February of last year Russia invaded the Ukraine. In discussions, I would assume, that would have happened within defence personnel, what lessons might there be from the Ukraine situation and the challenges for the Asia-Pacific as far as the Air Force is concerned? That's a difficult question. To put it, put it in our context, it's a different scenario for Australia. You know, we're not a small country that's uh, got a major adversary or competitor on our, on our immediate border. And then, indeed, other um, 
competitors that have questionable alliance, you know, where where do they sit? It's a it's a very very difficult sort of comparison to make. I was uh, in a meeting one time with a, a Japanese colleague, and they said, "What's your what's your air defence posture in Australia? You know, have you got people on alert?" And I said, "Well, we we don't necessarily have people on alert sitting in cockpits twenty four hours a day. You know, the Japanese do that because they've got Chinese and Russian aircraft that come down into into the islands to their north." And I said, "No, no, we we don't really have that." He said, "Well." We came down here in the 1940s, so, you know, <laughs> it was a, quite a good conversation with him about that. So the context different, but so what that means is the context for us is slightly different, uh, and without going into operational matters, we have the ability to provide air defence and air cover with an appropriate amount of warning time and intelligence information okay. through very complex intelligence networks and sensors such that we can put capabilities where we need them, when we need them. When I look at the the Ukraine example, there was no doubt that something was going to happen. This, this has been building um, politically and diplomatically for quite some time. There was a whole range of information warfare occurring and what we call propaganda on both sides, you know, the, the false flag events that were very clearly put forward Russia and exposed by intelligence sources, uh, you know, probably one of the first times in many years that that high-level intelligence was released in a public forum. The sources weren't advised, of course, so it, it's the information that was important. Gathering that information and preparing, and I think uh, my view is that the Ukraine was far better prepared than people thought they were, and that may have been part of their propaganda in, in return. Uh, you know, the day before the invasion occurred, people are walking around the Ukraine uh, in Kiev as if... It was just a normal day. It was, and the fact that we can all see that war as it developed and occurred, both frightening and, and quite illuminating. But there's no doubt that when they when it came came time for the Ukrainians to hunker down, uh, they were ready to do so. So I think some of the key lessons for us will be if we ever get to a position where there's going to be some kind of excursion above the level into the level of conflict, that you know, our air force will be ready. Our Navy and Army will be ready. We will know where we need to put our limited forces to get maximum effect and and be very thorny, make it very expensive for someone to take action against Australia. But I think the key challenge that we may not have enough knowledge of is how do we mobilise the population? How do we get a nation aligned and behind what could be, you know, if that was to occur, a very significant scenario? And if we are to be involved in war, then I would suggest that war is in fact a national endeavour, not just the, the remit of the armed services that's there. Every arm of government, industry, the Australian public, there will be a part to play depending on the level of war that we get to and the level of conflict that we might be involved in. You know, I'm not trying to scaremonger, I'm not beating the drums of war here. What, I'm, what I would use as an example would be at the time of the Second World War, you know, people are on coupons to get fuel, food, those sort of things. That was the nation as an industrialised nation, but newly industrialised, was the whole effort for the nation was to provide war fighting capability into the Second World War. Actually, we won't get to that, Gareth. No, I, I hope not. Uh, obviously, Prime Minister Scullin was very much uh, capable of uh, rallying the nation to get behind yeah. that. I would add that um, this is an important part of our force structure, our force posture, how government chooses to use our military capabilities so that we, and indeed match that with our diplomatic efforts, 
such that we don't get to conflict. Any, any nation that might be con- contemplating taking us to task in this sort of a manner, we would want to make sure we, we've got a very clear demonstration to deter them that if they were to choose that solution, that we would be able to take the sting out of their tail or at least yeah. cause them a lot of pain. But diplomatically, most importantly, bringing national power to bear other than violence is a critical part of how we would use all the arms of national power to prevent us getting into a, a level of conflict. And that, that to me, is that that's what we should really be aspiring to. And our force structure needs to take that into account to be able to demonstrate that part of it from a military perspective, that it has to be balanced with government intent, government will and, uh, and an ability to negotiate and discuss. So you can say to someone big, you might be big, but we'll give you a bloody nose. It does show the importance of partnerships, consolidated and, uh, and like-minded security posture in our region in the Indo-Pacific. As a former fighter pilot, this has got nothing to do with being Air Marshal or Chief of Air Force. It's just a, I, I'd like your opinion. The Ukrainians have asked for tanks and the Americans have responded, as have the English and the Germans with Leopard 2s and M1 Abrams tanks. Now, as a fighter pilot, and I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form, but it seems to me that a, an F-35 can blow a tank out of existence from a long distance away. Wouldn't you be better asking the equivalent of F-35s rather than tanks? What is your opinion? As a, as a fighter pilot, and I've always thought this throughout my, my career, is um, an Air Force can't achieve anything on its own. You know, we would provide air superiority to enable achievement of other objectives. So if that's defence of the nation, then uh, we can put up Fortress Australia, we can have our soldiers sitting on our, on our coastline ready to fight if anyone steps onto the shore We've got the Navy out in front there to, to pre- prevent any ships coming in and indeed providing air defence capabilities as well. And we've then got Air Force to put a layer of, of air defence further out so that we can prevent anyone coming in. So we, we don't do anything on our own. So to say that um, I would trade in Ukraine, Ukraine's case, giving them tanks or, or not giving them tanks in place of um, F-35s, well, F-35 can patrol the sky and prevent someone coming in and getting into, you know, aircraft coming over the top of the Ukraine, uh, maybe even targeting some of the um, Russian tanks. But you won't get all of them. You still need the force on the ground to hold the ground. Okay. You still need the capability to defend physically. You know, so to me, it, it, this is about combined arms. This is about a, a joint capability. It's a perfect example of a joint integrated force here. And it's easy for the public to sit there and go, well, look, the Russians in 2014 just hammered the Ukrainian tanks through a you know, very, very deliberate methodology. Well, the Ukraine have learned a lot since then. If you've got a tank on the ground, tanks these days, modern tanks, uh, fully integrated, very impressive sensors, armoured capability, and they're not, not just going to sit out there on an open plane and be a vulnerable target. Yeah, an F-35 is a tremendous capability, but it has to be able to find, fix, target a a threat, and then deliver a weapon to it. So you know, if the sensible, smart use of a tank, for example, the manoeuvre on the battlefield, the camouflage, in cover, under cover, out of cover to fire engagements, how you do that, now we're starting to talk about a joint integrated force where a tank becomes a key part of it as well as the F-35. Yeah, you've come full circle, and I'm sure President Zelensky knows what he wants and he's asked for the right thing for his, his particular domain. I'm sure that, that President Zelensky does know exactly what he needs. Yeah, and I think if he could aspire to and achieve a truly highly capable, fully integrated joint force, 
that's what he wants. But there's going to be political, a very strong political dimension to this. And there's, you know, you saw the discussions around modern tanks and where does the West's constraints on uh, actually fighting against Russia, where does that start and stop? And uh, it's, a, it's a really challenging scenario now for the United Nations and, and politically for each sovereign nation to you know, not be at war with Russia. That's a, that currently, it's a, it's a war between Russia and the Ukraine. It is being supported by like United Nations that can see a larger security risk if Russia was to be victorious. But those questions are really, really challenging questions to ask. And that's the question that needs to be answered before you consider many different types of weapons that have greater offensive capability, for example. That's really where the, the question lies. Well, I hope sometime in the near future, we can talk about your specific achievement of the DSC, your role in Catalyst and Slipper and uh, Deluge for uh, security for APEC. I hope we can talk about all those things because that's a whole nother dimension. But I have uh, two, I suppose, two final questions, if I may. If someone came to you, maybe a relative, a younger relative, came up and said, Dad, or Granddad, whatever, should I join the Air Force? What'd you say? Yeah, first question is um, absolutely. If it is what you want for a career, if it is something that you think you can add value to the defence of our nation, if you, if you feel passionate about what the Air Force is there for and you have to understand what our Air Force is there for, but in terms of building skills, doing things that you won't be able to do anywhere else, being uh, in the Air Force affords you opportunities to see and do things that you would not normally be able to do, you're taken care of and Probably one of the most significant things for me is the friendships and relationships that you build over a career such as this. They are lifelong. You know, I've got mates I joined the Air Force with. You know, we don't see each other or communicate with each other every day. But when we see each other, it's like, you know, what happened to time? You know, it's just like yesterday was the last time we met. These sort of strong friendships, I'm sure that happens in other organisations as well, but the camaraderie and the friendships that you form in Air Force are, are something else. And on the way to that, you get opportunities for diversity across your employment field. So one of the best things about Air Force is that you move regularly and you see a new job and it's a new challenge each time. And that's also in some cases the worst thing because you, you don't have the stability of living in one place. But, you know, I flew F-18s for the majority of my career, but I... I flew in many different squadrons. I flew from Williamtown. I operated up in Tyndall. Uh, I did staff jobs in Canberra. I deployed on a number of occasions, exercises overseas. I did a staff college in London. When I look back over those sort of things, the richness of those opportunities was a truly uh, great opportunity for, for someone to, to have and pull together as a career. Thanks, Dad. You've convinced me I'll join up. Join up tomorrow. <laughs> Last question. In your 42 years with the RAAF and more especially as Air Marshal and Chief of Air Force, what are you most proud of? Uh, getting married to my wife. It's probably a good one. I've got to, got to put that one in there. Okay, and second? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say that deliberately because she's, she's been a huge part of certainly my senior senior time in Air Force. It, it, it's a really, it's a tough gig. So you need the support of someone who understands and, and Lou has, has understood very clearly and, and has to contribute too throughout. Uh, but the proudest moment for me, a culmination of a lot of different things that I did over my time was when we delivered the capability into Afghanistan as an Air Force, as a part of a joint and integrated force to bring people home safely. And I think Air Force played a very, very strong part in that. We had an Air Force 
one star who was the commander of the task force in the Middle East at the time. We had a two star that was the deputy chief of joint operations. We had a one star as what we call the director general of air in joint operations who was really the operational commander for the activity. And then, of course, the performance of not just our air crew operating pilots, navigators, load masters, not just those operating aircraft into Kabul to do the evacuation, but our uh, all the maintenance teams, logistics teams, the administrators, people on the ground that were doing the processing of passengers that were offloaded um, after being evacuated out of Kabul into into our ba- base in the Middle East, doing all that in concert with our joint colleagues, Navy and, and Army in particular. And we had people on the ground in Kabul that were up against the wire, people that, that we call the, the capability we have there is the combat controller capability and their special forces trained. So to me, this was you know, bringing together all of the expertise from every single piece of capability that Air Force possessed. You know, there, there was fighter expertise involved with the command and control and support overhead we had the transport teams, the, the surveillance teams, every every aspect of Air Force pulled together to deliver what I think was a very effective, politically charged and very high threat scenario. And of course, proven that uh, you know, through the intelligence and information that we were able to gather, we were able to pull our people out. And two hours later was the major explosion that occurred there and resulted uh, very terribly and tragically the, the loss of American lives as well as Afghanistan lives. So, and I, and I think probably one of the key points about it was operations wasn't my key task for that. It was about providing the capability so that the chief of joint operations could execute. Had done very well through joint operations. Uh, but the provision of the capability and the training and preparation of our people to be able to be given clear commander's intent for them to get on with it and be in the position on the ground, the captains of our aeroplanes making very sensible decision based on the risk that they saw and only they could assess to deliver these outcomes uh, with such a high degree of success and, and deliver it uh, without loss of life or equipment from an Australian perspective. A very, very emotional but proud moment for me as the Chief of Air Force. A significant thing to look back on. Air Marshal retired. Mel Upfeld, AO, DSC. This has been a real privilege. And could I just say a big congratulations? 42 years, but more especially as Air Marshal and Chief of Air Force, you really have left a stamp, a signature of achievement. You've contributed to 101, 102 years of the Royal Australian Air Force in a profound way. Uh, you should feel very proud about that and most definitely be congratulated. So for your time, it's been a privilege and an honour. Thank you. And I hope maybe in six or seven months we can have another chat about some of the things you've actually done overseas. No problem, Gareth. Look, thanks very much. Uh, enjoyed having a conversation with you. I was very fortunate. I very much enjoyed what I did in the Air Force. That's why I stayed around. Uh, and I was surrounded and worked with truly amazing people, high expertise, highly professional, personable people that put their heart and soul into what our Air Force um, has delivered. So thank you very much for your kind words. And, uh, and I take those for all of those wonderful people that I've worked with over the years that have actually been the ones delivering all this. But uh, thanks very much. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. 
It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.